Welcome to another episode of the Intersection Podcast, brought to you by the Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. I'm Terry Blum, Ted Munchak Chair and Professor of Organizational Behavior and Faculty Director of the Institute for Leadership and Social Impact. I am excited to step in as host for this special episode as we welcome my dear friend and colleague, Frank Ravenel, as we celebrate 20 years of his teaching and research at Georgia Tech's College of Business. I was dean when we attracted Frank to join us from another university as an advanced assistant professor, and I am so glad that we did. Frank Robinell is a Regents professor and Alfred P. Sloan Industry Studies Fellow and holds the Russell and Nancy McDonough Chair in Business. Frank's intellectual imprinting hails from the Austrian School of Economics, highlighting the importance of innovation and constant change in market economies. His research focuses on strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Frank began teaching at Georgia Tech in 2003 and has become an internationally known scholar who has made a tremendous impact on his field of study, his colleagues, and his students. The Metter Research Innovation Center at Stanford places Frank as one of the most cited researchers in business and management, based on having published papers in the top 1% based on citations. Thomas Reuters identified Frank as one of the world's most influential scientific minds. Business Week named Frank one of Georgia Tech's prominent faculty, while Poets and Quants has recognized him multiple times as one of the favorite business school professors teaching MBAs. The Kaufman Foundation views Frank as one of the world's 75 thought leaders in entrepreneurship and innovation. In addition to being a world-renowned thought leader, Frank is a celebrated author. He has authored the textbook Strategic Management, which is now in its sixth edition, the market leader in the U.S. It's also widely adopted globally. Frank has written 70 case studies distributed by Harvard Business Publishing, with 28 of them having achieved bestseller status. It's my pleasure to welcome Frank to the podcast today. Frank, welcome. Thank you so much, Terry, and thank you for a kind introduction. Frank, it's such an honor to be able to interview you today in honor of this 20 years at Georgia Tech. I have questions in several buckets, and I'm going to begin with questions about your background and historical perspective. Frank, how did your early life experiences influence your decision to become a professor and researcher? That's a good question, Terry. Um, I was a first-generation uh, college attendee. Um, so I was born and raised in what was then West Germany. Uh, when I was 13, my uh, father passed uh, unexpectedly as raised by a single mother. Uh, money was tight. Um, every available vacation and some other times since I was 15, I worked construction to make some extra money, which was a real, real job. Uh, 7 a.m. in the morning till 6 p.m. five days a week. And basically, today's dinner, I went to bed and repeated the next day. So that was a time when I decided to pay attention to school and um, to do better academically. My big break came when I was an undergraduate student and an economics professor asked me to be his RA. Uh, and that's how I got the sneak peek into academia. 
So Frank, what brought you to Scheller? Well, Terry, um, you were one of the big reasons. Um, I'm very honored and privileged to be here. Been here for 20 years. Uh, as you know, when I joined, uh, Scheller was a scrappy uh, startup. And you really uh, shook up the place. I would call you a disruptor. So I chose to come here over other opportunities because I felt the school was ready for a huge upward trajectory. Uh, second reason was uh, you had just created a standalone strategy and group. And the third reason, what you call an OB person organization fit. Uh, my research fits well with engineering school where I publish some of my work in engineering journals and have engineers as a co-author. So it was a perfect fit for me and it has been ever since. So thank you for hiring me. How has the college evolved over the past two decades? Yeah, interesting. So over 20 years, I've seen the college more from a scrappy startup underdog to a successful incumbent um, with all the benefits and challenges. So uh, initially, we were the underdog with a can-do attitude uh, and few faculty. Um, and we basically had no place to go but upwards, which we did. And now we are ranked pretty much top 20, 25 everywhere. Um, college has grown, has all the things you would expect um, become uh, bureaucratized routines and so forth. So it's a very different place now than it was 20 years ago, which has benefits and drawbacks. What are some of the key milestones you've had in the 20 year journey that you've had at Georgia Tech thus far? Yes. Um, so with you starting disrupting the place and Dean's uh, Salvu and Alavi moving it forward, and now we we are uh, successful in common. The, 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 the highlights I've seen in terms of different categories, I would say that I'm very pleased to see that our strategy innovation group has become one of the best in the US. Uh, they're a leading group um, that um, I'm very proud of. I am very proud of the students we have placed in the doctoral program and trained, uh, MBA students. And um, personally, um, I'm very lucky to have the chief tenure and other, other accolades here at Georgia Tech. So it's been a great ride for the last 20 years. What would you say is your proudest or most defining moment? I think if I think of the college, I would again say the building of our group and the establishment of our group as a premier group, um, the training of students, and myself, uh, perhaps uh, achieving tenure, the uh, Regis professorship, the McDonald chair, certainly. Uh, but more importantly, things like making an impact through my research that was well accepted and used by other scholars based on citation impacts. And um, one of the best things that happen these days is when I go to a conference and I have a scholar come and tell me they teach in Beirut, in Lebanon, at university, but they're using my text. Um, I think these are huge uh, things that I'm very happy with. It's so interesting to hear that tenure was a defining moment, which it often is. But for you, it was a lot quicker than for most, as I recall. Your, your tenure, your promotions, uh, you were on a fast track. Right. Um, that didn't mean I worried less about it than other people. So I think um, I think it's always the next thing as an academic. First, you do your proposal, then you finish your dissertation, you worry about tenure. Um, and it's about gaining and sustaining competitive advantage. You always worry about 
So you've done well the last three years. So you're going to do well the next two years. Um, so yes, um, I was fortunate. I was fortunate to be in a good environment, to be supported, and to be productive. I'm going to switch gears a little bit to, um, you know, you're a scholar, and a scholar is made up of research and teaching. So let me ask you some questions first about uh, your very stellar research uh, rec record. You're a preeminent researcher in the field of strategic management and innovation. What sparked your interest in these areas? And how have you seen the area change over the past 20 years? Yes, um, I think my research journey started when I was actually a master's student uh, in economics. It's the first time I read uh, Schumpeter's uh, book on capitalism, socialism, and democracy, where he lays out a dynamic uh, market economy based on innovation and not uh, neoclassical equilibrium economics. And that gave me a framework to think about radical changes, discontinuities. And then during my doctoral studi studies, uh, Thomas Kuhn's book on the structure of scientific revolutions really shaped me because most of my work has to do with an anomalies, which are things you can't explain with existing theories. Uh, and I try to explain those uh, if that makes sense. For example, when we see radical changes, radical disruption, why why do, don't we see a destruction of incumbents and so forth? So I try to put the piece of, put puzzle pieces together that received wisdom can't explain. Frank, you've authored so many academic articles, uh, at least 40 in leading academic journals. Can you tell us about one of your findings? Uh, absolutely. So uh, I think research, what's important, I think a lot of the work happens before you start writing the first sentence in a research paper. And I always, I always consider myself to be an idea person. And where do ideas come from? They actually come from outside your field. So I like to read widely uh, beyond my field. Uh, I even read the lower level journals, popular books, come up with ideas. And uh, then I try to find novel research that's of interest to uh, other scholars and, and the wider world. Um, basically, I have three different areas that I contributed. My uh, dissertation was on technological discontinuities, which are major shocks to industries, could be uh, technology or deregulation. And I've looked at the competition between incumbents and new entrants, who wins, who loses, and so forth. Uh, a second stream of research deals with alliances, which is our cooperative agreements between firms, um, where I developed a system of new product development from university invention all the way to market uh, development, um, where universities outlicense their inventions to startups, they further develop them, and they continue to uh, license them further to, to incumbents, and then they commercialize them. For example, uh, during COVID, the development of the arm, mRNA uh, vaccine by um, BioNTech was precisely developed uh, according to that system. It was actually my most uh, uh, cited paper. Uh, third stream, I'm very pleased with. I work with uh, doctoral students uh, on it, which looks at uh, knowledge networks and star scientists, scientists within and across firms based on their publication and uh, patent networks to help us understand how these firms build new capabilities. And we find that a few key people embedded with the right support system make a big difference. So who does win and who does lose? Well, it depends. It depends on technology. The received wisdom is that the incumbents are doomed. Turns out the incumbents are often stronger than we think. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can see it right now. We have all these entrenched incumbents in the tech industry, like Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, 
And there's this whole argument, is there a kill zone around these companies that, that retard innovation? The received wisdom has been there is major innovation and it will overthrow these incumbents. That's what Schumpeter would have told us. But as you see, for example, with OpenAI, which was a non-profit startup that morphed into a profit startup, uh, it's now being co-opted basically by Microsoft uh, rather than having a startup grow up and challenge the existing uh, incumbent firm. So I think there is a lot that uh, received wisdom uh, does not tell us a correct story about it. So it depends who wins and who loses. Okay. I actually thought you were going to say something about complementary assets. or I can do that too. <laughs> I can do that too. So, um, it, it, so there's basically two parts to, to uh, innovation, right? One is technology, the invention. And a key contribution by Schumpeter was uh, he argued it's not just the invention, what the engineers do, the development, but what we do in business school is commercializing invention, which is the definition of innovation is actually as hard as the invention itself. And so it takes complementary assets, things like manufacturing, large-scale manufacturing, scaling up, distribution, FDA regulatory expertise, and so forth, that many startups don't have. And if this is hard to build, hard to develop, expensive, like in the pharma industry, uh, incumbent firms often uh, stand to benefit. We can also talk about different industries like media, for example. Uh, Netflix uh, initially uh, started on the complementary asset discontinuity just with distribution before they're backwardly integrated into content. And now you can see Disney's response, which is basically a media company for integrating into the complementary assets, becoming a, a business to consumer company. So. I actually teach both cases in my class and I ask my students, what is harder, being a tech company becoming a media company or a media company becoming a B2C a consumer company? So uh, these are some of the things we talk about in the classroom and I talk about my research. So what do you see as the biggest trend in, in technology and innovation and how do you think they're going to impact organizations? The biggest trend is, I see I call the fourth industrial revolution. Things like AI, robotics, genetic engineering, 3D printing, Internet of Things. And we just at the beginning of it. So we are basically the similar point in time where economies were in 1900 when they start to electrify. Um, AI, AI will be a general purpose technology, just like uh, electricity. It will affect every organization, every job, every person. And we just in the first 30 seconds of the game. So... Fasten your seatbelts. We cannot wish it away. We cannot ban it from our classrooms. Um, but the way you think about this is that this fourth industrial revolution and many of those technologies are a similar impact what we've seen with electrification, which then led to uh, mass production, a, a push in industrialization and so forth. So we see a major push forward, not to mention automation, robotics, and so forth. So all these um, developments in technology are just beginning and uh, we will see a huge impact on every one of us. The depth and breadth of your knowledge of technology and business is evident. How do you apply this to your teaching? In other words, what's your teaching philosophy? Right, so I never felt that research and teaching uh, was separated. Um, I always brought my research into the classroom and early on, I decided to be a, a Renaissance person. I never wanted to be the scholar that you can only talk to that scholar about his or her uh, cul-de-sac. 
of research. And when you go beyond, then there's blanks there. So I read widely and um, beyond my field. And I don't see separation between teaching and research. I speak about my research in class. And that's also why I wrote content for teaching, which is basically a translation of research for a wider audience. So that pedagogical work is really extremely important and is a big component of the strategic management textbook, correct? Correct, correct. On, on the other hand, uh, basically for, for junior scholars, don't try at home. This was not a project I, I undertook. I only started this when I was basically a, a full professor. Uh, it's not something you want to do early in your career. Uh, it's risky, time-consuming, and high opportunity cost. Uh, initially, it's very important that every scholar needs to build up his or her intellectual property in, in publishing their research. Well, you've demonstrated and expected a lot of rigor from your classes. And um, I think the students here uh, at Scheller appreciate that. So how have has your teaching methods changed over the 20 years, or have they? Absolutely. First of all, I, I love teaching. I never felt this was a, a distraction from my research. I also learned and focused on being present. When I teach, I'm 100% with my students. I'm not thinking about my uh, revise and resubmit or this committee meeting. Uh, I'm fully present. I also uh, prepare a lot for each class. And I have moved now to a model where I focus on value add in the classroom. So of course, I've changed a lot over uh, 20 years. When I first started, it was basically a lecture, which in German means four days old, which means a reading from the book. So basically, I taught by the book and stayed a chapter ahead of the students. Uh, today, I would uh, consider my approach improv uh, approach, trying to trying to create a learning environment that cannot duplicate it online. Let me explain. Um, I do not take attendance, um, and why not? Because if I notice that students don't show up, I'm not adding enough value. So I measure my performance by having 95 or 100% attendance in class because I want the students to feel like they're missing something they cannot get online or by reading content, um, but they need to show up and they want to be there. And so the class is basically a high-powered 90-minute each section on uh, Socratic discussion that takes place. From the second the class starts to a finish, I do not talk about the football game or anything else. Uh, I come in and the first question is, what should he or she do now? Uh, so I focus on case discussions and a, a value added that cannot be substituted with an online education. I also gather you're pretty demanding. That's right. That's right. I That's correct. Um, but I would say I'm as demanding or even more demanding of myself as of my students. So I never was the professor that was do as I say, but not as I do. Um, so I spent hours, I mean, you talking 10, 12 hours preparing for a case discussion. And I think about it, where it could go. And I need to be ready every minute to discuss a comment, a tangent, the question. And the way I do it in class is actually rather than focusing on what to think or this is right or wrong, I focus on how to think, and I use the, the board and the overhead projector, the document camera, develop the discussion by hand, uh, pretty much old school. I very rarely use uh, PowerPoint slides at all, and every, every graph I develop by hand. 
And I often put two different models of the world on each side of the chalkboard and say, so if you take a behavioral economics approach, you would think about this like ABC. If you look at this more from a neoclassical econ approach, you look at this ABC. And then I ask my students, what do you say? And so this is how I teach. And yes, I'm demanding. And sometimes, by now, the word's gotten out, the students appreciate it. But what's most rewarding to me is five, 10 years, 15 years later, I get emails from students thanking me um, for the class and the contribution that courses me. Wow. Talk about contributing to uh, student success. And one of the things we didn't mention about you is you are an award-winning instructor. So with that, what might be the most rewarding moment that you've had as a teacher and mentor? If I had earlier to question on, on how it has changed over time, I think it's important as you become more experienced, it's important to become more authentic. So to embrace yourself with all the strengths and, and weaknesses you have and fully be, be yourself. Um, most rewarding for me is helping other people achieve their full potential, helping my students, my colleagues to be the best uh, they can be, to help them achieve their professional dreams and uh, help them to see beyond their own self-concept, what they thought they could be doing. Uh, and not have them be limited by what other people tell them or, or what their upbringing told them or what society tell, tells them. And the most rewarding is when I see students and say, I have achieved X, Y, and Z and never thought it could have happened. I transitioned from this job and now I'm at my, my dream company and a much better job. Or I'm now in this nonprofit and they're making huge contributions. I think that the teaching an MBA strategy helps us to um, be confident to think through complex issues in business as in life. Well, let's turn to how the life you've led is influences the way you lead and the way you, uh, you teach. And so uh, given the authenticity that you bring to this endeavor, I'd like to do the vulnerability question. Uh, you've likely faced moments of self-doubt, uncertainty, or failure during the course of your career. How have you addressed that? I think we all have, and we all have these um, insecurities. Early on growing up, I was told often by teachers, uh, my parents were told that uh, I would never amount to anything and they should be hoping that I could just work for a delivery company. Um, that's how I started out. Um, and in academia, early on, you deal with rejection and rejection and rejection. And you also need to be uh, friendly with delayed gratification. So I think there's points in time where no one else believes in you. And the only person that can believe in you is yourself. And I think the trick is just to get up and keep going and uh, push yourself to the limits. And um, things will work out eventually. How do you balance the demands of a successful academic career with your personal life? Right. How do you maintain that balance or integration? Well, I'm still uh, working on it. I think sometimes achieving balance is difficult and achieving success in the profession doesn't lead itself to automatic uh, work-life balance. Having said this, I think we need to realize that all professional careers are demanding. 
uh, whether you're academic, uh, investment banker, uh, manager, uh, attorney, medical doctor, you name it, uh, a nurse, and so forth. And so, how did I how did I maintain balance? Um, I think a couple of things are important. I enjoy my work. I enjoy the autonomy. I have an MBA. I worked in consulting, which I found much more difficult working for someone else. Uh, not generating my own IP. Um, so I don't mind working for myself independently. I like long-term projects. I like challenges. Um, other than that, my life is pretty simple. I focus on my work and my family and try to stay healthy. Um, pretty much work uh, six days a week. Um, Sundays I don't work. Use this day for the rest of my family. But um, other than that, my life is pretty boring. Um, <laughs> work. Um, work, uh, family, and that's about it. Uh, but I find a simple life to be the good life. So balance may not be the best term, but uh, it sounds like there's a little bit of work-life harmony. That's right. Here. It's work-life <laughs> work life harmony, and I have a very uh, supportive family. I'm very fortunate in that regard. But truth be told, both my older sons that were born while I was in graduate school or young assistant professors do not want to become academics, right? <laughs> Even though my younger son, so Prague Paramo, scored on top of the class in economics and he became RA, I said, this is great. You should check it out. Let's go to the AA economics meeting and maybe you can get a PhD, right? He's just a first year student. He said, no, no, he's not interested. But maybe I just was too strong. But so it's yeah, it's a it's an interesting balance with all things. Well, maybe it's not yet. That's right. <laughs> uh, the, it still might uh, it still might happen. I remember one day uh, you came in. You seemed really tired, and you you told me about one of your son's um, inclination for understanding how things worked and how he uh, undid undid the sink. That's and, right. Uh, and created a flood. And that was flooded. That's right. That's right. And we thought that was wonderful. I think. Yeah, anyway, he, uh, he he did become an engineer, right? Harris is engineer, and, and he has started two companies by now. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how old he was. He's six years old. The second floor sink. He uh, investigated, and the next morning we had a <laughs> had a flood, and the downstairs on the hardwood floors. Never mind. So yeah. But now he's an engineer. That's right. So uh, let me uh, ask you a little bit about your personal philosophy about risk-taking in careers and in your career and in life choices. Right. So I think all of us need to realize that we have more potential and talents that we think we have. And we often condition do not believe in ourselves because we always told you can't do this. You're no good. You're, you're not cut out for this. You can't be a doctor. You can't be a professor because no one in our family has ever gone to college and all these stories we get, right? So I think good advice is listen to all the input, but decide what you do. And many of those judgments are projections of other people rather than a reflection of yourself. And I think people need to discover their true purpose and their potential, and they will be surprised to see what they can do and how much they can achieve if they uh, apply themselves. So what does bring you joy and satisfaction in your career, and how has that become part of your daily routine and decision-making? My greatest joy, to be honest, is, is helping others succeed, seeing others being successful. Whether it's the first publication with a doctoral student, whether it's a great integer placement for an MBA student, whether it's a placement for a doctoral student, excuse me, whether it's getting tenure for a junior faculty, uh, all those things make me very happy. So these are the things that bring most of, most of, of me joy. Um, and that's why 
a lot of my work is with uh, doctoral students and, and junior faculty. So trying to help others. Do, I think true happiness comes from helping others uh, be successful. It's so cool to hear you say that because I am having so much joy interviewing you. It's sort of like reflected glory in your success. I mean, I just could not be more pleased for what you've achieved and how much you've brought to uh, Scheller. Truth be told, I feel very lucky. I mean, um, I'm always feel embarrassed when when you read the when you gave the introduction. Um, I feel like I was very fortunate. I was at the right place at the right time. I, I was just the lucky guy, um, and I'm very lucky to be at Georgia Tech. I feel quite humbled, to be honest with you. Um, and um, so I've never left, despite many other overtures. It's great, and I feel fortunate to be here. So. Principles do you strive to impart to your students about business and life? I'm fortunate to teach a strategy course, which is integrating all the the technical functional areas the students have taken before. So my task is to help students see the bigger picture, how all the moving parts uh, work together, and help them to think about the big questions, the big strategic questions. So. And many of the students, all of the students are very strong in functional areas. They got strong functional training uh, and prior degrees, often engineers. But many lack the, the capabilities or the confidence to look at the big picture. Uh, and I provide frameworks and theories to help them make sense out of a complex world. So today, so when I was a student, we wanted information. We had to go to the library. And the best thing we had was LexisNexis micro, microfiche, right? Um, Today, students have too much information. So they, they need frameworks and theories to make sense of it. And I help them to make sense out of a complex world to make better decisions, not just professionally, but personally. So I ask them, what is your competitive advantage? Uh, how is the game played with you at a table uh, versus you not at a table? What's your core competency, right? Uh, don't follow uh, your passion approach. Find your core competency, but then become the best in the world in your core competency. And then you will be passionate about it. Talking about passion, where do you think maintaining a sense of purpose in your career and life fits? I think the, the, the purpose and the motivation has always come to, I think I'm very competitive, but I compete against myself. Do I, I want to be better tomorrow than I was today? And I'm pretty devastated when I didn't do my best in class, when I didn't do it a good job and a talk. So I think it has to do with like always trying to do your best. Um, and that's what my definition is as a professional. You do well regarding uh, the circumstances and you expect others. What I've noticed from students too, if you expect them to work hard and to do well, they will respond in that fashion and they will work hard and expect more of themselves. Um, so it's a very grown up grown-up environment uh, in, in, in my classes. Okay, so what drives you to continue making such a positive impact in the world here and beyond? We, 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 are, we are placed here to make a positive contribution. I think as long as we are healthy and strong to do this, uh, we should do it. And it's enjoyable. Um, and it's fun to see uh, Shell reaching even higher heights and to be part of this uh, ballgame. It's, and uh, every year we have great students and they're better every year. Um, it's just fun to, to be around um, smart, younger people 
Uh, I think it keeps you engaged and uh, it's just uh, a lot more fun now than it was in the first few years of the grad school. I can tell you that. I bet. Yeah. So lastly, what are your plans and aspirations with the next years? I think my biggest aspirations is to con to ensure that the strategy innovation group will be continued to be a premier group. And how do we do this? By hiring and retaining the best faculty. Our group has also become much more diverse, which is much better now. We hired some strong faculty, and my one of my biggest tasks is to help them succeed and to make sure that the baton is passed on at some point on that they will be uh, superstars and leaders. Um, that is one contribution I want to make. Uh, I want to make another a decade or so in the... Uh, and the MBA program, uh, executive MBA program, and then I hope maybe uh, I'm allowed to teach a few years in the undergraduate program uh, and tell some stories there and before I ride off in the sunset. But um, I want to see our group in good hands. I want to see Scheller continue upwards trajectory. And um, I'd love to see our students continue to succeed. And as you know from our profession, um, we see I taught roughly 2,500 MBAs. So no MBA could graduate without taking my class, which is a required core. One of my biggest contributions there was probably the development of the Life Case Project, which we started in 2003, which is a fully immersive field project. We were kind of the first MBA program to do this, where students work over 15 weeks on the, on the real life case given to them by a company and then present to company representatives. We have a little mini fair at the end uh, uh, where companies come and the students present among uh, in front of all the other MBA students. So that's been terrific. And uh, now that I've been here a while, I see students that have graduated 15, 20 years ago, and they're all doing very well. And they do extremely well, including uh, C-level positions at Fortune 500 companies. Wow, what a wonderful ride. The next chapter is going to be great, too, I'm sure. Thank you, Terry. I'm planning to do, uh, uh, hopefully, actually a few more decades. As you know, my youngest daughter is only nine and they all want to go to college. So I got to keep working a little bit. Um, but I want to say thank you. Thank you for being a disruptor uh, for all you have done as a very young dean, uh, the first female dean, the first female endowed chair at a, at a male-dominant institution when you started 25 years ago as dean. Uh, shook up the place, did not shy from tough fights, and I'm also grateful for Dean Salvo and, and Dean Alavi uh, for taking the school to building upon your work to next levels, and I look forward to what uh, Dean Mohotra will do uh, with us going forward, and I'm excited for what has changed to come. So thank you very much, Terry. Well, thank you, and you know, I can see that gratitude brings you joy. Absolutely. I think uh, gratitude, I like to learn, I like to share, and I'm very grateful to be here. Thanks so much, Frank, for joining us today. It was really wonderful to hear about your experience, even though I've lived through some of it. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode of the Intersection Podcast brought to you by the Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. We appreciate you listening and watching. You can Listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and watch the episode on YouTube. Thank you again.